The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, today we're going to be talking about unmaking a murderer. You've heard about uh, the show Making a Murderer (laughs) and Serial. And um, we have the OJ uh, series going on now. Today on Dr. Carol's Couch, you're going to be hearing about unmaking a murderer. And the murderer, or so-called murderer, or convicted murderer, who was fortuitously unmade, um, is Kirk Bloodsworth. And he's my guest today. Um, He actually, we're going to be, you know, no one likes to think and no one believes um, in America that uh, someone, an innocent person, I mean, we've heard about random cases here and there and the Innocence Project and so on, but we still don't like to really believe that it could be possible for someone who is innocent not only to be convicted of a crime, but to be sentenced to, to death, to be on death row. Well, my guest today um, is here to tell the tale, fortunately, he's still here to tell the tale, of how, in fact, um, that happened to him and how it is happening to other people in prisons all over the U.S. So, Kirk, welcome to the show. Kara, Dr. Carroll, it's a pleasure to uh, do the show with you today. Thank you very much. Well, now... Um, we're, you know, this this story has a happy ending, not only in the sense that uh, Kirk did not die, <laughs> it was not not uh, this death sentence wasn't carried out, but just to give you a a tease, a glimpse to where we're going to be heading with this, the the positive news, in 2004, President George W. Bush signed into law the Kirk Noble Bloodworth Bloodsworth Post Conviction DNA Testing Program. And that program provides grants to states to pay for inmate post-conviction DNA testing. And, um, and also, he is just releasing, as we speak, he's releasing a documentary called Bloodsworth, An Innocent Man. I mean, to, to sort of cut to the chase, and then Kirk is going to give us all the details, um, he is the first man on death row to have um, been exonerated and freed based on DNA evidence. We take DNA evidence for granted these days. You know, everybody expects it, especially with all the crime shows on television. I mean, that's like a staple. But back in the day, he was um, arrested in 1985, convicted in 1985 for a crime in 1984. And so back in the day, um, there wasn't, that wasn't happening uh, to the extent that it is uh, today. 
So, now that I've kind of set the scene for you, Kirk, <laughs> um, and, and I was starting to tell you before we got on the air that, um, you know, as a psychiatrist, one of the things that I'm interested in, uh, th- I mean, this whole story began, in a sense, when you were honorably discharged from the Marines, you were 23 years old, when all of this nightmare began. But could we start a little before that? You know, I, as a psychiatrist, I, I'm interested in childhood and so on. We don't have to go into it too much, but, but I'm just wondering what, um, how, what gave you the strength? I mean, what happened in your childhood? Is there anything in your childhood that you think back, I mean, you had a lot of time to think, that you think back made you more vulnerable to being uh, convicted, though you were innocent, and anything in your childhood that made you able to withstand uh, almost nine years in prison? Well, Dr. Liebman, it's, uh, you know, I'd, I had two great parents. Uh, I had, uh, you know, a, a very loving family in general, and I would have to describe my family as self-starters and uh-huh. people who stand up for things if you're, something is wrong, um, you know, you, you want to correct it. And uh, my mother and my father both never wanted us to feel sorry for ourselves in general. You were given a task uh, to do, and you were had to see see it through. Um, I, my mom read to me a great deal growing up. I grew up in a very uh, spiritual household. We went to church, and uh, there was a lot of love. We had dinner at the table every night for my entire time. I was there until I went to Marines in 1978. Uh, I was um, in a uh, went to high school in 11th and 12th grade in a Christian high school. It's called Open Bible Academy. I, you know, I grew up in this environment. Wound up uh, when I went to the Marine Corps, being a uh, uh, national, uh, you know, I mean, excuse me, an All Marine Discus Champion. I, I, I did a lot of things, and, um, you know, and um, I remember when I was, uh, I think I might have been about ten years old. And I, uh, my father had gotten me a shotgun, and I, I don't want you to be alarmed or your listeners, but that was something, you know, we were from a family of hunters and, and uh, people who lived off the land. I had a, a trap line when I was younger. Um, anyway, I got lost in the woods, and uh, this was on a Saturday, and I was at my grandfather's house, and he had a big place. But I remember... Um, being lost and I was cold and it was getting dark and I didn't know where I was and I had it uh, I had realized that I had went I was going in a circle hmm. and I stopped and uh, listened and heard the the trucks uh, on the highway uh, or the cars in moving and then a couple uh, cars uh, sort of blew their horns, you know, I mean, the trucks. And mm-hmm. I kept following the sun, and I would stop, and I would listen, and I would stop, and I would listen, and I made my way out of this place. And I think that's how this all began for me. You know, I I just couldn't understand it. Uh, I had a fairly calamity 
as a growing up as a child, I, 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 uh, I got ran over by a car hmm. when I was five years old. Hmm. I, um, I mean, I got backed over by a 57 Chevrolet. The only thing that saved me was the tricycle. Hmm. I, um, I got bit by a dog 17 stitches when I was eight years old. I fell through a plate glass window. I, um, I had a fish hook shoved through my thumb. I, um, uh, uh, got lost in the woods and uh, did all this other stuff. It's I fell overboard and almost drowned two or three times in my mm. lifetime because my father and I were were all fishermen, um, and I was around the water a lot and just had been through one ordeal after another. To me, it almost seemed like you know. My I told my father when I turned thirty years old, I said, "Well, I made it," and I was. Uh, I was on, in prison then, and he said, well, he said, I didn't think you would make it to 10. <laughs> but uh, uh, certainly I did. And, uh, you know, huh. my, my, when anything would happen, my parents would always tell me, it's not the end of the world, don't be afraid. And uh, you stand up for what's right. You just have to, you know, it's always about focus and paying attention. And I, uh, I certainly got weary in the beginning, but that's, I think that was a part of it. I think my childhood... Huh. In the Marine Corps, my father was a Marine, helped mold me into the man I am today. Mm-hmm. Wow, well, that makes a lot of sense, um, because certainly a lot of people wouldn't have been able to do what you did. Well, let's start, let's start with what happened on the day when um, a little nine-year-old girl was raped and murdered. Tell us about what the, the crime, first of all. Okay. In July, uh, on July 25th, 1984, a little girl by the name of Dawn Hamilton was found brutally uh, raped and murdered in a wooded area near her home uh, in uh, Baltimore County, Maryland. She was out playing hide-and-go-seek, and she had got up that morning and wanted to watch. Uh, they all. Uh, she had a sleepover the night before, as the court uh, records will say. And... Uh, her friends that came over, and so after the Facts of Life, it was a TV show back in those days in 1984, was off the air, and he wanted to go outside and play, and hide-and-go-seek was the game, and she was it, uh, according to uh, her family and stuff. And uh, she went out to look for her friends, and it was about 11 o'clock in the morning, and couldn't find them, came back to the house, and asked her aunt that was watching her that day if she could the kids wouldn't come out of the woods, and she said, well, you go back there and help them, uh, tell them to get out of the woods. Mm. They're not supposed to be there. The kids came back, and Dawn did not. Uh, About 2.30 that afternoon, um, Dawn was found lying face down in a pile of leaves, and I am going to forgo the rest of it, but I can tell you that it was one of the most horrific crimes in Maryland's history. Dawn had went through a lot of trauma, in my opinion, and I, um, I I had never in my life had ever heard of anything that was done to this child. Is what happened to this case, mm. and it was mm. it was all based on a uh, witness identification of a person that was described. And for your listeners, I'll describe this for you. Uh, the person last seen with her that day was described as being six foot five, curly blonde hair, bushy mustache, tan skin, and skinny. 
she had went down to the, on the second uh, trip back out to the woods to look for a friend. She had run across two little boys who were fishing, who became the main witnesses in this case. And uh, one was eight and one was ten years old. And they, she had asked them to help her find her friends. And uh, they declined. They had just caught this turtle, they said. And, um, uh, but a man on the rise of a hill with the sun behind his head spoke up and uh, told her that he would help her hmm. find her friends. And, of course, um, <clears throat> her leading the way and him following into the woods, uh, as the boys described, uh, she was never seen alive again at that point. And, um, I mean, he had even had, uh, supposedly had touched his, their tackle box, according to them. And hmm. um, But, you know, it was witnesses had been called forward and, um, I was living in Baltimore at the time, and I just moved there Fourth of July weekend in 1984. I just got married to a girl who lived in Essex, uh, Maryland, which is a suburb of uh, of uh, Baltimore in uh, Baltimore County, which is where the crime occurred. And this whole thing started for me based on. Uh, on a next-door neighbor seeing that composite sketch that was done by the two little kids uh, and said that uh, the composite sketch looks like my neighbor, Kirk. Hmm. And um, at the same time, my wife and I were having problems, and I uh, I just didn't want to... She would disappear at times and, and not come back for a couple of days, and I was working, living in this place with seven other people, or eight and nine at times. And just wanted to go back to my simple life of being a waterman on the eastern shore of Maryland uh, as a crab, a crabber. Um, when I was telling you about the description of the person, being six foot five, curly blonde hair, bushy mustache, tan mm-hmm. skin, and skinny. I'm about six foot tall. My hair was as red as an apple back in those days. I had red sideburns, and my skin is not tan at all. Um, I uh, I burned. I had freckles and uh, very uh, orangey type hair and missing tooth in the front. And they dismissed all this when the two little boys, one of them, said that the hair was too red. And hmm. it just was one missed thing after another. They came to talk to me, and the next thing I know, I was fighting for my life. Well, now you you mentioned. Um there's you have there are some clips um of the movie of the documentary on your uh-huh. website and um there's one where you say that um that you and your wife were watching television and mm-hmm. they showed a um this composite sketch and your wife turned to you and you said what are you looking at and she said that kind of looks like you yeah 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 i i told her you know i said you're crazy but and uh, I think that's how we focus on things in a vacuum sometimes. I mean, it certainly was just a benign remark by her, I'm sure, because uh, she was one of my uh, alibi witnesses. And um, and I, I would have to say it to some, maybe to some degree, that that sketch might have favored me, but it was done by two little boys who um, the police brought together in the same room to do to agree upon the older child's mm. composite. There was a lot of things done. There was also a woman who did a composite of a man 
that looks more like the real person who committed the crime. She was much older. And uh, Faye McCullough had seen uh, the person as one of the other witnesses as early as 6 a.m. or so in the morning. And uh, 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 said, it was not me. And it did a composite, and the police threw it in the trash can. Huh. So, uh, you know, it was, it's a, it was a lot of things done, and it just snowballed into whatever could go wrong in a criminal case. So how were you first contacted about this? I mean, after your wife said, that kind of looks like you, um, then what happened? Like, how, well, when was the you first... Know, uh, my wife and I were having marital problems. I mean, you know, it's like I was saying, she was uh, doing a lot of um, uh, extracurricular stuff outside of the house, and it was just mm-hmm. us. You know, we just got married, so I was getting disgusted about that kind of thing. So I had uh, wanted to, to leave. The next-door neighbor called the police, and, and this all was happening right around the same time. They were looking for the real killer. And... Um, uh, you know, they came to talk to me. They showed them a picture of me. The, uh, for some reason, they, uh, the little boys in the um, uh, okay in the photo array. You know, one of those are it's a set of pictures, usually six photographs or so, mm. um, and all depict uh, suspects that they you know might be uh, responsible for it. Um, they had stopped at my photograph, and that's when they said the hair was too red. But hmm. uh, the police just dismissed every little thing in this uh, case, and they came uh, to question me in Maryland, I mean, in, uh, in, excuse me, in, on the eastern shore where I was living at the time. Uh, I was staying there trying to figure out what I was going to do. It had nothing to do with the Hamilton murder. I just was had had a failed marriage and didn't know what to do with my life at 23 years old. But it looked suspicious that you it looked suspicious that you had left home. Well, I, you know, I have to say that this, uh, the, uh, the the Court of Appeals of Maryland did not say it was flight. They just, uh, you know, it's just a coincidence if anything. Uh-huh. You know, because I had come to them, I answered the door when they arrested me. It wasn't like uh-huh. I was Hiding. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, Kirk, we need to take a break. Uh, we will come back to the story when we come back. Um, today we're talking about unmaking a murderer with my guest, Kirk Bloodsworth. Um, so stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and we'll be right back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. 
Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. I want to get back to my guest, Kirk Bloodsworth. We're talking about unmaking a murderer. His, the, the movie, the documentary about his life is going to be coming out. It's called Bloodsworth, An Innocent Man. So when we left before the break, you were talking about, uh, we were just about to get into the trial. And um, how long did your trial last? About two weeks. Um, I was arrested in August of uh, 1984, and by uh, March of 1985, I would, I would be sitting on death row. The trial started with um, witnesses. Now, as I was telling you all, the two main witnesses in this case were two little boys. One was eight and the other ten. Now, the, the, the entire uh, case really hinged upon their, their testimony. Now, they held a lineup. I was arrested on a Thursday. They held a lineup on that coming Monday. They called every witness in the case and told them not to watch television. However, everybody in the case of... Kirk Bloodsworth versus State in the the murder of Don Hamilton um, uh, watched me on TV the entire weekend. They even mm. said this in open court. Now they held the line up on that Monday, and the two main witnesses, none of them identified me. It's not until a couple weeks later that they uh, their parents called the police department and said that it was uh, our neighbor. Um, they made a mistake. It was really uh, number six, and that's the position I stood in. Huh. Um, it was it was three other witnesses. They had one witness on it that said she had said uh, I had said some terrible thing or something, and I had done something terrible. And when uh, she was testifying in court, uh, she said she read her statement and wrote it, yet she could not read or write. Um, hmm. There was one little snafu after another. Uh, the two little boys don't call, uh, don't identify me in the lineup, and then uh, there's another man by James Culler. When they finally asked him where he had seen me from, he had said television. Hmm. Um, and there was just one witness who said she had saw me, and this was these were eyewitnesses now. And um, um, she never, in, the, in her original statement, she never seen anybody. She just heard somebody say something. And it turned into this surreal, like, courtroom drama thing that we enjoy today on television. But it was, uh-huh. it was so real and so scary. I didn't uh, know what to do. And all these people pointing me in the courtroom and, you know, saying, there he is. And the prosecution not believing me at all. And I had... Uh, over 10 alibi witnesses, who five of which testified, but they believed their story and not mine. When the two weeks was over, the gavel came down on my life, and the jury convicted me on all counts, and uh, the judge sentenced me to death to an applause from the courtroom. Wow. I mean, the courtroom just went crazy, like somebody hit a home run. 
for the wow. I mean, I guess they wanted somebody to pay for that. Yeah, but let's get the right ones, so. Mm-hmm. And that was so my they... whole thing. I kept telling them, you know, uh, Dr. Carroll, from the moment of my arrest until the moment of my release, I told anyone and everyone I was an innocent person mm-hmm. and an innocent man. And I used to sign my correspondence that way. Respectively submitted, Kirk Noble Bloodsworth. A period, I period, M period, hmm. and innocent man. Hmm. Uh, nobody wanted to listen to me at all. And, you know, there was a lot of different suspects. There was one suspect who his police report came in eight days before I was arrested. They never went back to check. And did that turn out to be the man? It did. He was a uh, real killer. And, you know... And he was not six foot five, uh, Doctor Carroll. He was five foot six and one hundred sixty pounds. Hmm. And he slept in the same prison with me for five years and never said a word. Yes, that was that was the ama- an ama- one of the amazing parts of the story that you were on one floor. Um, I guess that was when you were on death row, right? And he was beneath one floor beneath you. And he, so he he knew because of television, I guess. Did he know that you were the one who was um, in prison because of that crime? There was really no way to know that. I would say yes as a guess. Uh, he says he didn't know I was in there for it. He says this. But I find that hard to believe since I was in the newspaper every day and on TV every time my case ever got mentioned. I was, it was big news in, in Baltimore and in Maryland in general. And this was like a very celebrated case with, you know, uh, one of the hardest, uh, hard line death penalty counties in the state, which is Baltimore County at the uh-huh. time. Well, tell us about so th- how you wound up getting yourself exonerated. Well, I. Uh, wanted just to say that at the end of the trial, when the gavel came down, the, the court erupted in applause, and I went into a bullpen, which what we call the bullpen, and they wound up shipping me from there after I was sentenced to, to die to the Maryland Penitentiary in Baltimore. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, my life was spit now compared to anybody else's life. I was the most hated man in the state. And people used to call from the windows uh, and, and from the other yards, we're going to get you, Kirk. Hmm. We're going to do to you what you did to that little girl. And I used to get all kinds of hate. And, um, you know, I had bottles of urine squeezed. Uh, there's like a laundry detergent bottles squeezed full of urine and feces on me. And I was just beat down and um, gotten several altercations and just tried to, you know, survive. I never realized at the time that what I was accused of was going to be so harsh until I got there. And then it dawned on me that, you know, I was at the bottom of the social ladder within prison. Mm-hmm. And they stuck me in a cell that I could take three steps from the back wall and be at the cell door and reach out uh, my arms like a cross and touch either wall by going an inch either way. Mm. 
And that was my home for the next eight years, 10 months, and 19 days. Um, this was a bad place with a lot of bad people. Now, <clears throat> I, um, I did the best I could, you know, and I'm not necessarily proud of everything that I, I did. I got into some drugs and I tried to, you know, escape that way. But once I picked up a book, uh, things changed for me forever. And I used to, I used to be a fairly good, uh, decent reader uh, growing up. My mother was uh, a staunch reader, and she made my sister and I read as much as we could. But, you know, it's, I was into sports in high school, and you get out of that thing, and I started reading everything I could get my hands on and wound up becoming uh, the prison librarian uh, for seven and a half years. I read everything from, uh, you know, Stephen King to Gestalt Psychology, um, which, uh, you know, if you ask me, Dr. Carroll, I don't know what Gestalt's all about. I read it twice, and I still don't know. (laughs) But um, that's how I found uh, dioxyribonucleic acid in my life and how important it was, or otherwise known as DNA testing. Read a book called uh, The Blooding by Joseph Wombaugh. And the first time that technology was ever used in a criminal case. When they caught the guy in the end, um, I had an epiphany. And Colin Pitchfork turned out to be the first person ever convicted behind genetic fingerprinting. And since then, I've met the person responsible for developing that technology. you know, Alec, Sir Alec Jeffries uh, of, in London, who created the technology we so enjoy today. And um, I had an epiphany. If it can convict a person, why can't it free him? And uh, I started uh, remembering all the FBI reports. I had two different trials. My case was overturned because uh, the state withheld evidence about another suspect. And I received a new trial. Uh, in, this, in the second trial, I was convicted again, but sentenced to double life instead. And uh, I just went back to prison, an innocent man. Kept reading, and, but the blooding, the book, The Blooding, by the Ball's book, uh, really saved my life. I wrote the prosecutor a letter, <clears throat> and I said, I want to take this new test. Her name was Ann Brobst at, uh, at the time, and, um, you know, she, had, she has since passed away. But um, I said, I want this evidence, the DNA, to prove my innocence once and for all. And she wrote me back a letter, Dr. Carroll. She said, we regret to inform you, but the DNA has been inadvertently destroyed. Hmm. I just didn't believe her. Mm-hmm. My lawyer, who's a judge now in Washington, D.C., he, he didn't know what to do. He had been there twice to look for the evidence, and I asked him, I said, you know, if you don't go one more time to look for it, I'm going to call you collect for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> he went to check it out, uh, and uh, sure enough, it wasn't where it was supposed to be. And he was getting ready to leave, and he happened to pass... Uh, uh, the law clerk in my second trial in the hallway, 
and he asked that they knew each other, and he said, and then my lawyer's name was Bob Morin at the uh, and he said, well, what are you doing here, Bob? And he says, well, I'm looking for the Dawn Hamilton evidence in the Kirk Bloodsworth case. And he said he knew where that was. Huh. It was in a paper bag in a cardboard box sitting in the judge's closet in the floor. And there was all the evidence I needed to prove my innocence. And it turned out that half of one cell is what saved my life. Hmm. Well, do you think uh, do you think that the prosecutor knew that it existed and purposely didn't want you to get it, or was it just because she wouldn't have thought that the judge would have it in his chambers? Well, you know, I'm trying to uh, to, to I guess Ann Brooks would be the only one to really mm-hmm. answer that question, or mm-hmm. the other attorney which is Bob Lazaro, but um, I don't know. I don't think they deliberately, they just believed what they believed, and it turned out in the end uh, that the judge just forgot it was there. Hmm. I, I might There might be more something on the second trial judge's behalf on the evidence being there than it would be, um, you know, on the, the prosecutor, you know, just hit it. Um it was in his chamber, so he was the last one to have it. They never moved it back to the evidence room. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so, uh, you know, he had the key. So it was in his possession, I, I think. And uh, there it was. So then they so they tested um, the DNA, and they found that, the, that it wasn't yours, mm-hmm. and that's when you became freed from jail, from prison, but you weren't exonerated because they hadn't found the real killer yet. Well, actually, I was exonerated. I was given a full pardon but, from the governor it, of Maryland. Well, wasn't it in 93 you got out? Right. And I received a pardon in 94, received $300,000 in compensation from the, the state of Maryland for uh, my troubles. It's about $30,000 a year. And uh, received a full pardon. You had to get, which I never understood why I had to be pardoned to get compensated. But I was clear that it was just the naysayers in the Baltimore County and everybody that prosecuted me were saying this. It wasn't the state itself. Officially, I, I was uh, I was exonerated. But I mean, uh, to them, it was unofficial. But it, to me, it was official as soon as I walked out the door. I see. It didn't take, um, it took another 10 years to find the real killer, and uh, he was right underneath everybody's nose. He had been arrested two weeks after Dawn's, um, excuse me, he's been let go two weeks before Dawn's murder for two attempted rapes of two other little girls a year before. Huh. Um, they let him out. And he killed Dawn, and then his police report, that was the police I alluded to earlier, um, who came, uh, uh, you know, eight days before I was arrested. They never went back to check on this guy. Um, and it took another ten years. He was, arre- he was arrested three weeks or so, or three months, I'm not really sure, but after, me, after I was already arrested and waiting to go to trial, 
for attempted murder of a woman in Fells Point. And uh, uh, he got 45 years of that. He was about eight years away from parole when the DNA hit, hit him. Hmm. And uh, he pled guilty to Dawn's murder in uh, 2004 and uh, did it alone while he was high on drugs and um, drinking, he said. And um, when the judge asked him what he could say, he said he didn't know what he, he said. What can I say is what he said. Huh. Hmm. So he never I, really admitted that he knew that he let you um, uh, be convicted and, and go to death row, death row, even though he knew he was the one who did it. Yeah, and you said he, that, uh, he never yeah. owned up to his, um, uh, you know, I use a Dr. Philism, uh, he never owned it mm-hmm. at all. Uh, he just, uh, you know, he he just bowed his head. He, he knew what he had done and. Uh, it was his DNA on everything of hers and uh, his semen. Now, when you were saying before about um, about drugs, you mean in the prison you were doing drugs? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, not not before, not before this happened. No. Well, I smoked some pot and, and, yeah. and drank a little bit back in uh, when I was a Marine, but... Uh, uh, mm-hmm. You know, I was just a, a youngster. I was only 23 when this all happened, and uh, I was just trying to sort my life out. I was I wanted to buy a boat, and a commercial f- uh, fishing boat, and go fishing. And um, it was never meant to be. I had aspirations of even going to the Olympics at one time, but um, life has different things. In for which you. in which sport? Uh, the discus. I was a uh, oh, right. all marine discus right. champion three years ago. Yes. Hmm. Well, that was going down a different path. Well, we need to take another break. My guest is Kirk Bloodsworth. We're talking today about unmaking a murderer, and uh, we will be right back because we all want to get back to his story. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, 
Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with you today about unmaking a murderer and the um, the convicted murderer who turned out not to be. One is Kirk Bloodsworth, and uh, he's the guest today on Dr. Carol's Couch. Um, let's start with what happened when you um, got out, when you finally got the news that... Um, you were going to be a free man. I mean, that's a big, you know, that's another shock and another adjustment that you had to go through. So tell us yeah. about that. Well, I, I you know, I want to start off by saying five months before I was released, uh, my mother passed away. Mm. And uh, I was allowed to go see her body uh, at the funeral home for about five minutes in handcuffs and shackles. Uh, Hmm. It, it was because of her that I could read my, my mom, and uh, I miss her very much. And uh, it was uh, <clears throat> it was a hard thing. It's why I thought I was gonna succumb to that. I, I really did because I didn't know I was getting out at that point. I and then <clears throat> as time went on, I remember my mother. She used to say, "You know, you have to stand up. I might not be here, but." You have to stand up and keep standing up for um, uh, for your innocence, and that's exactly what I did. Um, I was sitting in my cell one day, and a guard had put one of those post-it notes in the door, and um, you know the kind of sticky things, and uh, mm-hmm. it said, "Urgent, call your attorney." I got uh, out of. I was you know I was allowed to move around as freely as one could, I guess, as a, a inmate. But because um, I, I was a librarian, so I went in the day room and called my lawyer about a millionth time collect. He said uh, he, he accepted a phone call every time. He never, he never uh, didn't uh, accept it. And uh, I was basically, uh, you know, yelling on the other end, Kirk, you're innocent, man, you're innocent. And I, um, you know, told him I knew that and when I was going to get out. And the FBI retested it, and on June 28th, 1993, sometime after 9 o'clock in the morning, I stepped out of the Maryland system, a free man. Hmm. Went wow. home in a limousine ah. and um, that was paid for by the uh, WBAL uh, Radio station, Jane uh, uh, Miller, uh, an investigative reporter, worked on my case, uh, uh, did an expose the last two nights, and um, she was really convinced of my innocence early on and um, was a champion there for And she always would say that she wasn't a white knight, but certainly was huh. in my book. And they took me out, got me a pizza and some beer. Huh. And I... Uh, I was getting off my freedom from there. Um, well, where did you go from there? Well, you know, Oprah Winfrey, um, I went everywhere at that point. I, I've i spoken just about and told the same story that I'm telling you and your listeners um, uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times uh, over the last two decades. Uh, I... Um, <clears throat> You know, been to Congress and spoke in front of Congress several times. 
several legislative bodies throughout the United States. I've helped um, with other exonerees like myself and the death penalty in uh, in my home state of Maryland. We don't have it anymore because of a, a lot uh, due because of a lot of my efforts and kept pushing for abolition and criminal justice reform, like uh, the Kirk Bloodsworth post-conviction DNA testing program that you mentioned in the first part of your show. Uh-huh. Um, it's gotten um, several people out of prison who were innocent. Um, Mike uh, Von Ullman from Kentucky um, uh, used the Bloodsworth grant. Um, uh, Thomas... Um, uh, Hainsworth, uh, out of Virginia is another one. And, um, so, uh, that was, it was named after me. It's basically the Bloodsworth grant is a grant that would defray the cost of DNA testing for other states that they don't have the money and money's in short supply for some of that stuff. And, uh, it, uh, also would give monies to people to, uh, uh, to hire attorneys uh, with uh, the Bloodsworth grant um, uh, for the innocence projects throughout the country. There's, there's, there was no innocence projects in 1992, uh, mm. mm. and uh, and now there's hundreds of them uh, throughout the United States, um, and they're all independent of each other. It's a, it's a very uh, good program, and I am so happy with it. And, Wrote a book called Bloodsworth, written by Tim Junkin. Um, he did, and uh, that was uh, done about 12 years ago. And um, and now Bloodsworth, an innocent man, the documentary film, which is done by Gregory Bain, which uh, um, is out right now on the, on demand and iTunes and uh, Amazon.com and other things and um, nationwide. So. It's doing quite well, I understand, and I uh, you'll get it from my perspective. And uh, well, did the writer, did the author of the book um, about you uh, uh, um, meet with you? I mean, were you? Did you? Was it from you that he got the information? Oh yeah, it's um, he. But he he talked to many people throughout the. The, um, the in the story, uh, Gregory's documentary is really from my point of view, and uh-huh. so it's basically, you know, as a defendant, how it looks, and you know, you're an innocent person sitting at that place. It feels a lot different. Uh, the the system of justice we have in this country is adversarial, and it sometimes. Um, at least a hundred and um, fifty sometimes now it has uh, been an error and it's adversarial to the truth and and that should never be um, I fight for criminal justice reform and the abolition of the death penalty as much as possible um, and how did you i mean was it your i'm part of the problem. Um, what you alluded to is, of course, people, a lot of the people who are innocent and, or, and who have gotten a raw deal from the system um, don't have the money. I mean, part of the, part of the problem is they don't have the money to pay for good lawyers to begin with. Right. Um, did you have a public 
defender, or did your family? How did you? Did you have I, the I money? Did. To... I did. I I got really extremely lucky. I didn't have any money uh, to speak of. I had a paid attorney in the second trial, which didn't really net me uh, much at all. Uh, the first one would have certainly uh, been, uh, um, uh, you know, charged with some sort of ineffective assistance. Um, you know, he was inadequate. And the second one, I, you know, he did, I think they did the best they could, but, um, we didn't have anything. It was just the kindness of the system. And I, I certainly found, uh, there's a guy by the name of, um, uh, Gary Christopher, who runs the public defender's office at, that he's retired now. He, um, the federal public defender in Baltimore. And I had wrote him a letter, and he was the only one that wrote me back. Hmm. It wound up getting me Bob Morin, who is the judge in Washington D.C. now. He's been a, he was appointed by Clinton in in '94, uh, uh, I think, and uh, who was a fabulous lawyer. Uh, I I tell you the truth, if I had a chance to vote for him, I'd put him in the Supreme Court. The guy's so smart, mm-hmm. and. Um, so he was a public person. defender, but you had asked particularly, you had requested someone who was going to be really good or do a, do a lot of work on the case. Well, I, you know, you don't really get to, to, to say uh, who that is. They appoint these people. Uh, Christopher right. just asked Bob Morin if he could help, and he, I wound up having a whole law firm at the end of the day. You know, most of these guys and gals that had this happen to are working with a public defender or somebody that's inadequate, that's never had any experience, that have a hundred other cases. And, yeah. You know, things like this are happen. And but, you know, at the end of the day, it is about the truth, Carol. It's about how we. Uh, I'm sorry, Doctor Carol, and uh, how we maintain this thing. Um, and it's mm-hmm. all about integrity. If you mm-hmm. withhold evidence or rely upon junk science or any other kind of means that you want to win versus uh, doing the truth, you take that away from the jury, and uh, that should never, ever happen. Uh, it's not you, fair. You know, there is an irony here that I'm sure you've thought of a million times. Um that your name is Bloodsworth. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that you're... Who would ever thought the first guy released on DNA would be named Bloodsworth? Exactly. <laughs> well, you know what? I tell people this all the time. My middle name is Noble. And yes. But... I, I think that's what kind of person I am. And um, uh, I think a lot of these guys and gals that had this happen to them... Uh, but I tell everybody, since you talked about that name, I'll tell everybody, you know, if you don't want criminal justice reform, you have to think and ask yourself a question. What is your blood's worth? Hmm. And I think that's really what it amounts to in society today. We have to take control of our court system and the criminal justice system in such a way where not only is it fair, it is uh, uh it's just not being fair, but we put the right people behind bars that need it, and uh, we should do away with capital punishment completely. You have a T-shirt, right? 
uh, I saw you in a picture wearing a T-shirt. I don't want to misquote you. Could you tell us what that says? Uh, you're talking about the blue shirt. It's, yes. Uh, there was a fellow uh, named uh, Freddie Pitts who used to be um, the chairman of Witness to Innocence, a group I belong to. And Freddie said it best. Uh, you can free a man from prison, but you can't free a man from the grave. And that is so true. We just need to do away with things that could make that happen and help things not to uh, put a person in prison. At least if they do go and they're innocent, we can get them out. Well, you know, you're being um, uh, somewhat, uh, I don't know if cavalier is the word, but, you know, I mean, when you came out, and after the limo and Oprah and all the other media that you did, which was wonderful, I'm sure. But what was it? It was it must not have been easy, you know, um, making your starting your life from scratch. You were saying well, during the break, you were saying about how when you come out, you think of yourself as being the same age you were when you went in. Right. Yeah, I mean, certainly, uh, I, I, you know, I don't want to sound cavalier, but uh, I, I can say that, you know, I've made peace with it, and that must be what you're hearing. But in the beginning, I was not. I was angry and upset in the first part of it. I, you know, I just wanted people to pay, but it it dawned on me from the very beginning um and I, I, one name kept coming back to my brain, and that was Dawn Hamilton. You know, she lost her life. The least I can do, and in a brutal way, the least I can do was try to, you know, live mine to the best of my ability. And I wasn't doing that right away, and it really made me push to find the, the real killer. I mean, he's trying to find a job. Dr. Carroll, if you go to apply for any job today, they ask you a question. Have you ever been arrested for a crime before? Mm-hmm. How are you going to answer that mm-hmm. in my position? Uh, most of the people, including myself, who have been exonerees or who are exonerees, suffer from post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. I see counseling to this day. Oh, that's and, good. Uh, you know, it's... Um, uh, it's because of things like that and uh, folks like yourself that have uh, helped me, um, you know, to live my life. And and uh, certainly Bloodsworth is going to be one of the final things, uh, the move, the documentary. Well, yes, I, w- I want to make sure that we, I want to take time right now to give people your website, uh, which is Bloodsworth and Innocent Man. That should be dot, dot com. That should be easy enough to remember. Bloodsworth and Innocent Man dot com. Um, and what I liked about it is, uh, first of all, you know, the movie, the documentary seems amazing, but also there's a way, and it's all on the website, a way to uh, make a screening for yourself and your friends or yourself and people who, um, you know, are also interested in making sure that innocent people don't uh, wind up on death's row. Right. Um, so bloodsworthaninnocentman.com. And um, that's going to be traveling all over the country, presumably. Yeah, it's, um, you know, Gregory Bain did an excellent job. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I was really shocked by how it turned out. And we, it took us over four years to do that. And I was living out in Idaho for a brief period of time. 
um, while we made the film, or we we started making, and then he followed me across the country mm-hmm. when I moved back to Maryland <clears throat> and now Pennsylvania, where I live today, and um, it uh, it's a labor of love, and 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 you know it's not an easy thing. Um, to, for me to listen to, I've watched the film a couple times, but I, it, you know, it's you know my death of my mother and everything, but it's a good film, and I think this is a testament to what can happen to you if it can happen to an honorably discharged marine with mm-hmm. no criminal uh, record. Mm-hmm. It can happen to anybody in America. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. And yes, I really think uh, everyone needs to see this because you know it's it's something where people think, oh, this could never happen here, but obviously it can and it did. And and you deserve so much admiration for not not just coming out and you know wanting to make up for the years you lost by I don't know having fun. But I mean. I mean, I hope you have some fun, but by, by working so hard to get all of these laws passed and, and um, to be honored and to have your um, a fund in your name helping other people who are in your position. So thank you so much, Kirk Bloodsworth. Again, the website is bloodsworthaninnocentman.com. So check that out. Check the movie out. You can bring it to your neighborhood. It's really easy. I've never heard of, I never realized uh, that you could do it like, like it describes on the website, but it looks great, and I'm planning on, on creating a screening. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Dr. Carroll. It's a, it's a pleasure to do your show. And I just wanted as a sidebar to tell you that I'm also a silversmith. I started doing, making jewelry last mm-hmm. year, and uh, I do the whole thing. I make rings. It's uh, bloods, uh, stone, bloods-stones.com. Uh, oh, okay, great. Yep. You're not letting you're not letting any time get away from you. <laughs> I'm trying not to. Well, thank you. Again. I, I love to do it. Thank you so much. You're welcome, and thank all right. you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 